Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. So in 2018, uh, there was an organization called More in Common, and in 2018, they started a year-long project that they called the Hidden Tribes of America Project. And the purpose of this project and research was to better understand the forces that seem to be driving polarization, particularly political polarization, in the United States. And according to their research, after this year-long project, what they discovered is that there's basically about eight different tribes that you'll find in the United States. And some of those tribes they title progressive activists, or others they call passive liberals, or they talk about traditional conservatives or devoted conservatives. And one of the things that they discovered is that while the tribes that they would consider to be at the ends of the political spectrum, the extremes, right, the progressive activists and the devoted conservatives, while those people, according to their research, make up actually the least amount of the population in the United States, they are in large part driving the cultural conversation. And they are creating an increased deep divide in the nation, and they're encouraging a sense of tribalism. Now, this doesn't shock anybody in 2021, because we experience the effects of this deepening of division and this tribalism, I think, more in 2021 than they even thought possible in 2018. In fact, I would argue that there isn't a single topic of conversation as of late that somebody somewhere hasn't tried to hijack and make the issue that needs to be discussed in our nation. 
And we think about these things and we look out on the world and it doesn't really shock us, I think, at some level. We kind of expect there to be division and tribalism in the world. And perhaps we're right. But what ought to shock us, as it did the Apostle Paul, is when we see this tribalism not just being an issue in the world, but being an issue in the church. In fact, this is one of the main reasons why the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. You see, the Apostle Paul, who again wrote the the letter of 1 Corinthians, after he had planted this church in the city of Corinth, he went on and continued his missionary journeys to plant churches in other cities. And then he received word from his associates and said, the church in Corinth is literally and figuratively tearing itself apart. You need to go back and you need to address these issues. And one of the main issues was this issue of tribalism. We actually see this if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that in verses 10 and Uh, 10 through 12, the Apostle Paul says, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, who's Peter, or I follow Christ. And instead of seeking for unity and truth, what the church in Corinth had done is they had divided themselves into all of these different tribes, right? So there's some people that were saying, listen, we're just going to follow the Apostle Paul. He's our favorite teacher. Others said, no, we're going to follow this guy, Apollos. He's our favorite teacher. And then we had some people who just wanted to, you know, pull the trump card and say, no, we follow Christ. Everybody else is just following worldly leaders. We're the ones following Christ. And what's, I think, really important for us to understand is that this disturbed the Apostle Paul because everybody knows this. Tribalism is destructive. And the reason that tribalism is so destructive is because it feeds our lust for worldly power and worldly wisdom. And when churches, when we begin to center our lives around worldly wisdom and worldly power, in verse 17, right before the start of this passage here that we're going to look at this morning, the Apostle Paul says, we render the gospel useless among us as believers. And so we need to wrestle with how do we actually resist the temptations of tribalism, of worldly power and worldly wisdom. And I think this is, this is particularly important for us because we live in a culture and we live at a time that is defined by tribalism in the world. And so as we dive into 1 Corinthians this morning, that is what we're going to be considering. How do we, as God's people, resist the temptations of tribalism that could happen among us? But before we dive in, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be gathered as your people this morning to know you in the face of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and his great and mighty rescue of us. Help us now as we spend time in your word to see clearly the gospel, the message of our rescue and all that it entails. And would you give us an eye to see one another and what we truly are in you um, as your people. Humble our hearts in light of what we read. Illuminate us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the Apostle Paul dives in looking to address this issue of tribalism in, first, in, the, in the Corinthian church. And the first thing that he says is that if we're going to resist this temptation toward tribalism among God's people, the first thing that we need to do is we need to immerse ourselves in the gospel message. I want you to notice, if you look at verse 17 and 18, where the Apostle Paul starts. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then if you look later in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you, Corinthians, except Christ and him crucified. The key to addressing or resisting tribalism among God's people is to center ourselves and immerse ourselves in the gospel. And what's interesting, I think, is that Paul, when he says, Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach, right, he's making an overstatement there. Because in Matthew chapter 18, when Christ actually commissions the apostles, he clearly tells them, go and make disciples and teach them all of these things that I have taught you and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we have to ask ourselves, why would the apostle Paul make such a gross overstatement? You did not get, you weren't sent to baptize only to preach the gospel? That's just not true. And I think the reason that the Apostle Paul is doing this in this particular passage is because he wants to push really hard against this temptation of tribalism to encourage the church not to focus on who baptized who, who is actually a part of whose ministry fruit. And instead, he wants the Corinthian church to focus on the gospel message itself. And in verse 18 and in verses, uh, and verse 23, he defines the gospel in this way. He says, the word of the cross is folly. And in verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified. Paul is defining the gospel for us. He says the message that needs to be a completely immersive experience for all believers in the church is that we meditate on the word of the cross and Christ crucified crucified. To Christians who are overcome with this desire for worldly power and worldly wisdom, Paul is saying, listen guys, you need to remember that the gospel at its core is not about a triumphant Messiah. It is about a Messiah who has been crucified. And what's really fascinating about this is that where he goes is he says, that message of a crucified Messiah is going to be not seen as wise or powerful in the world. It will always be looked at as scandalous and to be frank, stupid. Look at what he says here in verse 18. He says, the word of the cross is folly. And he repeats that in verse 21. He says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And so as the Corinthian church is seeking ways to elevate itself in the culture and seeking ways to elevate leaders among themselves, the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, first and foremost, guys, the gospel that you actually believe is just fundamentally ridiculous, right? The word that is translated folly in verses 18 and 21 and even in verse 22 is a Greek word that we get our English word moron from. He's saying the gospel is fundamentally moronic. 
In the eyes of the world, the story of a 33-year-old carpenter from the backwoods town of Nazareth who was crucified by the Romans as a criminal for the sins of God's people and then resurrected from the dead and then, lo and behold, to be revealed as God in the flesh. Can we just take a minute and just rest in the fact that, like, that's a completely insane message. Nobody should be believing this, right? Michael Green, in his book, 30 Years That Changed the World, comments on these disadvantages that the early church would have experienced in seeking to share the gospel with their neighbors. And I love some of the comments that he makes about these challenges. He says, at nearly every single level of life, whether it be religious or social or domestic, Christians in the first and second century would not have been met with open arms. They would have been met with skepticism, opposition, and persecution. At every level, in religious circles, Christians would have been at odds with a government who said, you must worship the emperor. And they say, we will worship the only son of God, Jesus Christ. Claiming to be people made holy by Christ's sacrifice, they would have completely avoided the idolatrous entertainments that were available to them and then ostracized themselves or been ostracized by the social circles around them. And even in their homes, right, as people claiming to be part of a new spiritual family, Christians consistently, especially when one spouse became a Christian and another was not, they were cut off from their families. They were ridiculed by their families. And not only in, in light of all these challenges, to just simply speak about a crucifixion was seen as uncouth. That those people in honorable circles did not mention the word crucifixion because it was seen as the horrific cru uh, uh, torturing technique that it actually was. And yet... Despite being ridiculed at every level of society, miraculously, the message of the gospel moved through the Roman Empire and continues to move through the world to this day. Somehow, this ridiculous message is being received not as a message of stupidity, but as a message of salvation. And look at what he says. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 18. He says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And in verse 21 again, Because it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Notice how God is turning the world upside down through the preaching of the gospel. That while the world seems to have wisdom and power, the gospel is showing that it is God's will in the world that those who are pursuing worldly wisdom and those who are pursuing worldly power, they will not find God. In fact, they cannot find God is what the Apostle Paul writes. The Apostle Paul also quotes here Isaiah 29, and he says, The Lord's will is, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God has willed it that those who are being saved are not those 
who are exalting themselves and committing themselves to worldly wisdom and worldly power. Those who are being saved are the ones who believe and embrace this foolish message of the gospel of a crucified Messiah. Those who actually say, we will follow Jesus and take up our cross and follow him. This reminds me, this kind of juxtaposition of the Tower of Babel. You guys will remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, that people came together early on in our history to unify themselves and create this monument to worldly wisdom and to worldly power. They rallied around the greatest technology of the day and they sought to exalt themselves and to push that tower into heaven. And God showed with just a comment that he was going to thwart their wisdom and he was going to thwart their power as if it were nothing and scattered us all over the world, which is why we have all of our different languages. God is not amused by the world's passion for its own wisdom and its own power. And in fact, God will judge the tribalism that we see in this world because, as it says in Isaiah, every tower of Babel will be destroyed because of a crucified Christ. And what does this mean for our lives? Well, we need to take stock and we need to ask ourselves, are we slapping Christian stickers on our own towers of Babel? Are we relying on worldly wisdom and a desire for worldly power? And I think this can, this can look in a myriad of ways. Are we willing to embrace different aspects of what we might call progressive Christianity? Progressive Christianity is just Christians ashamed of what the Bible teaches, looking for a way to satisfy their lust for worldly wisdom so that they won't look foolish, so that maybe we won't look foolish in the eyes of the world as we align ourselves with God's word. If we're going to actually be following Christ, we need to reject progressive Christianity. And on the flip side of that, for those of us that, that are rejecting progressive Christianity, we need to reject pragmatism. We need to reject the temptation to do things, culturally speaking, that will help us maintain power in our culture. We need to reject pragmatism and say we're going to do these things because we know they will lead to more effective power in the world and influence. We need to reject these and what we need to do is we need to immerse ourselves as individuals and as a church in the foolishness of the gospel. Tim Keller wrote in an essay called The Centrality of the Gospel, how we need to think about the gospel in and among God's people. He says, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something that is more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. It is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but it is the A to Z of Christianity. We need to be a community. We need to be individuals who are immersing ourselves in this gospel of the word of the cross and of a crucified Messiah. That is how we will resist tribalism, not just because God has ordained that this word of the cross will be a conquering power in the world, turning it upside down, 
but also because God has entrusted this message of the cross to a community of truly insignificant people. I want you guys to look at verse 26 because the Apostle Paul says, if we're going to resist the temptation of tribalism, not only do we need to immerse ourselves in the gospel, but we need to immerse ourselves in gospel community. In verse 26, he says, consider your calling brothers. He turns his focus from focusing on the foolishness of the gospel message to talking about the foolishness of gospel community. And actually, I love uh, how the Apostle Paul kind of emphasizes this point, not so much in verse 26, where he says, for consider your calling brothers, which is just a really nice, polite, and encouraging way of saying, you and I are united in Christ. Let's remember the unity that we have in Christ. I love how he says it in verse 20, because the Apostle Paul here is a little sassy. In verse 20, he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? As if to say, they ain't here. They're not in this church building. They're not among God's people. The people of worldly wisdom and worldly power, you're not finding them anywhere among God's people. And what he's trying to do is he's kind of trying to cut them down to their actual size. He's saying, wait a minute, brothers. You who want something more than just simple, gospel-centered community, why don't we just take a minute and remember what you are and what you are not. And I want you to look here again at verses 26. You can look through 29 because what the Apostle Paul does is he just kind of shows them all of the different ways that they are weak as the Corinthian church. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And this last one where the Apostle Paul says, not many of you were of noble birth, that would have hurt particularly to those in Corinth. And the reason for this is that the city of Corinth was originally founded in the Roman Empire to basically be a place where soldiers could retire. And by the first century, this kind of soldier retirement community had become a hub for trade. Because of where it's located in the world, it had ports going north and south and east and west, and it was incredibly wealthy, and more importantly, incredibly self-important. That it took itself extremely seriously. And what that meant is that the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, you have all this money, and you have all this self-importance, but what you are not as ex-soldiers, right, as retired soldiers or as merchants, you're not noble of birth. You're not kings. Let's be honest. You are expendable, Corinthian church. And you need to recognize that in the world, you really don't hold that much influence and that much power. And this goes even further as we dive into the demographics of the early church. There's a really great quote uh, by a philosopher uh, whose name is Celsius, and he wrote in the second century, Celsius hated Christians. And so here's what he said, uh, I think reflecting on their demographics and uh, just what it was like. He says, the Christians proselytize like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near, for these abilities are thought by us to be evils. 
But as for anyone ignorant or stupid or uneducated, if you're a child, let that person come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit these kinds of people, they are worthy of their God. They show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, only the dishonorable, only the slaves, the women, and the children. That's the accusation against the Christians. Hey guys, this band over here of so-called Christians, they're pretty ridiculous and they're not that powerful. And Paul is saying, you got to remember that, that that's true. Not only is the message foolish and God's using it, not only are you considered weak in the world, but you also need to consider your calling, right? Because as the Apostle Paul draws attention to the Corinthians' weakness, he then turns and he says, this weakness God is using in the world to shame the wise and the strong. Look in verse 27. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Paul is making this connection between the weakness and insignificance of God's people and the gloriousness of God's plan. He repeats that phrase over and over again. It is not because of our worldly power. It is not because of our worldly significance. It's because God chose us. That's it. In fact, this idea of our calling being really centered on God and God alone is something echoed throughout the entire Bible. It, it starts in Deuteronomy chapter 7 when God gathered his people before sending them into the promised land, he says, you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to our fathers and that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's always been true that Christians, those who are God's people, have been insignificant. And that is a part of God's design. That God would be gathering insignificant people to believe a foolish message so that he might display his wisdom and his power. So what, is this, what does this mean for our lives? I think very practically, this means that you and I, we need to embrace one another as a local church. You need to look at one another and you need to see the weak and the called. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who wrote a book called Life Together, which is, in my opinion, the best book ever written on Christian community, he wrote this about the challenges within Christian community around this issue. He said, innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it has surged, uh, sprung up from a wish or a dream. The serious Christian sets down for the first time in a Christian community 
and is likely to bring with him a definite idea of what Christian life together should be and then tries to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such idealism. Just as surely as God desires us to have a genuine Christian fellowship, so we must be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with each other, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, even ourselves. We need to be disillusioned with ourselves so that we might actually depend on the wisdom and the power that is found in the gospel alone. Later, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Christian community is not an ideal that we must realize. It is a reality created by God in Christ in which we must participate. As God has gathered us together as his people this morning, you are listening right now to a foolish message about a crucified Messiah. For those of you who believe, know it is because it is because God has called you, not because you are special. And as we are cut down to size, what we will find, as it says at the end of this passage in verse 30 and 31, is that we will be a community that does not boast in our wisdom, does not boast in our cultural relevance or cultural influence, our progressivism or our you know, practical wisdom. We will boast alone in Jesus Christ. In verse 30, the Apostle Paul writes, and because of him, because of God who called you, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. When we immerse ourselves in the foolishness of the gospel, what we discover is that the worldly wisdom and the worldly power that informs the tribalism in our world, okay, that we are not desirous of those things. When we immerse ourselves in the gospel, what we find is that our soul is deeply satisfied with what Christ provides, his wisdom, his righteousness, his sanctification, and his redemption. This is how we will resist tribalism among God's people, even as the world is defined by tribalism, as we boast in Christ and we rest in all that God has given us through a foolish message, even though we ourselves are foolish people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how it humbles us in light of your truth and in the light of the truth of our lives. Continue to work in our hearts by your spirit. Elevate the glories of the gospel in our minds. That as you have turned our eyes to behold you crucified for our sake, Lord Jesus, that we would be enamored with your great love and provision for your people. Thank you for saving such foolish people so that you might demonstrate your wisdom and power. Give us a deep sense of satisfaction in your righteousness and your wisdom and in your power so that we might not be tempted toward tribalism in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.